0: So things are not always as they seem. I remember when I was probably about 13 years old, 13 or 14 years old. We lived in Missouri at that time, and we lived on a wildlife area. My dad was the district manager of that area, district director of that area uh, there in Missouri. And we lived uh, in one of the state houses in that wildlife area. It was a huge area, uh, full of woods and ponds and lakes and all sorts of things. And on our little ten-acre spot, we had a pond in the back, um, just right behind uh, the um, the house. And we would go back there fishing all the time. We'd go back there fishing. There was lots of fish in there. We stocked it with catfish and and uh, all sorts of things. There were bluegills and stuff like that, and so we'd go back there fishing all the time. Uh, There was also some other creatures in that pond that uh, would take our bait from time to time whenever we were fishing. Well, one day, I went back there fishing, and my sister, Brittany, who's in the back with the kiddo, so hopefully she can hear this because I'm going to pick on her, she went with me. Uh, That day, and we fished. I I like fishing with bobbers. I just like doing that. I like seeing a bobber out on the pond. I like seeing it go under. I mean, it's just the anticipation, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. Even today, I'd like to fish with a bobber. It's just a lot of fun. So we were out there fishing with bobbers, and we caught some bluegill and stuff, and I think we might have even caught a couple uh, small catfish. And Brittany was out there with her fishing pole, and she had the bobber just right there on the edge. And I don't know how old she was, maybe ten years old or something like that. And She cast it out there, and all of a sudden the bobber just went. Woof, I mean, just under. I mean, just disappeared. And I got so excited. I'm like, man, this is a big catfish on the end of this, right? And so Brittany's, you know, trying to reel and 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 things of that nature. You know, trying to pull it up. I was like, man, this thing is just not coming up. And then all of a sudden. Right on the bank, the biggest snapping turtle you've ever seen comes out of the water. Now, I would like to think that my sister and I dove into the pond, wrestled it, all right, like the crocodile hunter, and brought it to the service, and we had some, some snapping turtle for dinner. That's not what happened. She screamed. At the at the, as as loud as she could possibly scream and threw my fishing pole into the pond, and then ran home. Brittany, I know you can hear that and it's true, even if you can't remember it. <laughs> and the point to this is that we thought we had this big massive treasure, and what I had was a fishing pole in the pond because there was this monstrosity of a snapping turtle that started to attack her. I don't know that she, if she knew it was a snapping turtle or if she thought it was some sort of like Loch Ness monster of St. Louis. I'm not sure. Um, But it was a big old thing. I did get my fishing pole. I did not get my bobber. And so, but things are not always as they seem, right? What we think is there is not always there, right? It's something different. Well, today we're going to look at that just a little bit. In fact, the author of Hebrews talks a little bit about shadows, and this message today is the first part of a two-part sermon series entitled The High Priest of the New Covenant. And so this is part one. And so what we're going to be looking at now, we're making a transition in our sermon series looking at uh, the New Covenant and the, the uh, intercessor for the New Covenant— who is Jesus? And at some point in this message uh, today, or in our passage today, the author talks about shadows. And we know what shadows are. Shadows are a, a sign, a, 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 they are a um, uh, they're an indicator of something real, but shadows in and of themselves, they're not the real thing, right? They're pointing to something that is real. And so when the sun hits us and casts a shadow, all right, the shadow is not me. It is just a symbol or it is, a, it is something that is that is demonstrating that I'm there, but it's not really me, right? And so that's what a shadow is. And what the author today is using, he's using this idea of shadows as an example of what the Old Testament was doing, pointing to Christ okay, is that the Old Testament, now those things were real, and they had purpose, they were important, but they were pointing to something much bigger. And so that's what we're going to discuss today. And so we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And uh, if you would join me here, it says here, now the point in what we are saying is this, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Do you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. And we thank you for the Old Testament. We thank, we're thankful uh, for the law. We're thankful for those priests. We're thankful for those sacrifices because they point to this ultimate truth that is in Christ, that is in the gospel, that is in grace, uh, that, is in, uh, that is kept for us in heaven. And Father, we are thankful for that and we love you for it. Be with us today as we study your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so this idea of shadows is really interesting, you know, and uh, now it is likely that this is not what the author was leaning into uh, when he was writing this, but there is an allegory that was developed by Plato, and some of you all have probably heard this or have heard a, 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 a type of this allegory, and, and the allegory involves shadows in caves, and what Plato was trying to trying to show is that many individuals are are missing out on the real picture on the on the real thing because they're so focused on shadows. And the allegory works like this. He says imagine a bunch of prisoners who are chained in a cave and that's all they know. they're chained in a cave they can't move their heads all right and so all they can do is look forward. behind them is a fire and the fire is emanating light forward. And so what they see in front of them is not the fire, but they see the effects of the fire, the light, and the shadows that are projected on the wall. And then he said, now envision puppets that are there, marionettes that are lined up dancing and making all types of uh, demonstrations, their shadows demonstrating on the wall. Now, the only thing that those prisoners can see are those shadows. And when someone speaks, it sounds as if the shadows are making the voice. Now, are the shadows the real thing? No, they're just symbolic of the real thing. But for too long, stuck in that place, now the prisoners believe that the shadows are actually real, that they are the meat and beans of what they are seeing. But in in fact, what they are, it's just symbolic. They're pointing to something that is real, but they are not the main point, if you will. That's something like, again, it's allegorical, okay? It's something like what the Old Testament is doing for us. Now, was the Old Testament not real? Absolutely. It was absolutely real. Was it unimportant? No, it was very important, very crucial. But it is not superior to what we see in the New Testament. It's not superior. The law is not superior to grace, The law was pointing to those things. Were the high priests of the Levites, were they important? Absolutely they were important, but they are not more important. They are not superior to our great high priest, right? The old covenant, was it important? Absolutely it was important, but it was pointing to a greater and a superior covenant. And so that's what we're looking at. All right, that's what we're going to be looking at today. And so uh, over the next two weeks, actually, we're going to be looking at this new covenant. And today what we're going to look at is we're going to be looking at Jesus and how Jesus as the high priest is the intercessor to this greater covenant and and the aspects about Christ that make that so. And so we're going to be moving through this, and we're going to move through uh, pretty quickly uh, because a lot of this we have covered in some way. But I want to just highlight some points in here that just make this come just to flesh out. Because I'm afraid that even in today, in our in our in our church age, in our New Testament age that we're in, that some individuals are still so focused on shadows of the faith that they are neglecting true faith. They are looking at the the these individual plants and individual weeds, but they're missing the forest, if you will. They're missing the bigger picture of faith and the bigger aim, which is Christ. And so if you would join me in this, um, I would appreciate it. I'm going to read this passage again, and then I'm going to jump back to a reference because I believe the author here is tying into a psalm that we've already looked at, which is Psalm 110. And so follow again with me here. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this, and he's referring to everything he was discussing in chapter 7. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, if you would like to join me in reading Psalm 110, This is a Psalm of David, and it says here, The Lord says to my Lord. Now we know that that is Yahweh speaking to Christ. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs, over the wide earth, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Now that Psalm 110, many individuals in the Old Testament days would not have linked that necessarily to, obviously they wouldn't have linked it to Jesus, and many of them would not have linked that to the Messiah, but that's what Psalm 110 is about. It's this eschatological or end times projection of what the Messiah in Christ would do when he Reigns, that Christ is going to rule, Christ is going to reign, and all other rulers will fall by the wayside because he is the true King of Kings. He is the true High Priest. Melchizedek, for as great and superior as he was over the Levites, he's still not Jesus. Jesus is still the greater High Priest, yet even in the order of Melchizedek. So let's walk through this and let's look at what makes Christ, all right, let's just kind of pick some things out quickly about what makes Christ the perfect intercessor for this new covenant. So it says here in the beginning, in verse 1, Now, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So let's let's just pick that apart real quick, okay? Now, the Levites, all right, those individuals of the Levites, those high priests, they were not seated at the right hand of God. Now, were they important? Absolutely. they were crucial. They had a very specific place in the order of redemption, in the line of redemption and re- through redemptive history. They had a very important role. They were high priest. They did intercede on behalf of the people. They went in and they made sacrifice. They gave gifts on behalf of the people for the sake of the people's sins and their own. They were important, but they were not Christ. You see, the individual who sits at the right hand of the king is the most important individual. So, in, in the days of the monarchy, all right, oftentimes the king would invite nobles to come into his court. And when he was addressing the people, the nobles would stand near the king. And every noble wanted to be near the king because that means, man, I'm part of the group. I'm part of the group, right? And so it reminds me of that episode, which if you've never seen it, it's not going to make any sense, but there's like five people in here that get this. It, it makes you uh, think of an episode of The Office where the new boss invited the guys into the inner circle, right? And you just wanted to be a part of the inner circle. Paul knows what I'm talking about. He's thinking of it, <laughs> all right? And you just wanted to be a part of that inner circle because important things were happening in that inner circle. Now that's a joke. They were playing basketball in the office, but you get the idea, right? You wanted to be a part of that. You wanted to be one of those noblemen in the inner circle of the king. But then there was that one noble who had the privilege of being at the right hand of the king. Because that was the most important person of all of the noble people. Well, that's who Christ is. Christ is that one individual who has the privilege of being set at the right hand of God. Christ, after ascending into heaven, takes back his place at the right, so Christ descends, all right, humbling himself to take on human flesh to bear our sins, and then he ascends back to heaven to take his rightful place at the right hand of God. The right hand is the most crucial place, and it dictates or it it, it demonstrates how this new covenant had to be represented and interceded by an individual who was that crucial, that important, and only Christ could do that. This place of priority gives Christ authority in ways that the Levites could not even imagine. The Levites, for all of their purpose and all of their importance, could never once and for all intercede on our behalf, removing sin. They couldn't do it. The new covenant could never have been fulfilled, could never have been made, if the Levites were the ones that were interceding on our behalf. Just not possible. It would take the Christ, the Messiah, who is in Jesus. Exceptionally important concept. So that's the first aspect we want to make here. The second point has to do with the superiority of the seat, all right, of the, of the place, I mean, of the place. So it says, now the point in which we are saying is this, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. So likewise, the place of ministry is greater. So if we're talking about the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant, then the one one thing that makes it superior is who is seating, who the high priest is, and where he is seated. He is interceding on our behalf right now, at the right hand of God. The second, though, is the place. So after, in Exodus uh, 20, all right, so after Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, they build this tabernacle or tent, a place of meeting for them to worship temporarily until they had come into their uh, their, their promised land where they could actually build a temple, right, under Solomon. But until then, they had a makeshift uh, worship area. They they were. It was a traveling worship tent, if you will. All right, and that was where they had their services. That's where they had their sacrifice. But it was built by man. All right. It was now. It was instructed by God. So Moses laid down the rules in which, because it was exceptionally important, the way it was built and the way it was constructed, and it had to be built with that in mind we're going to talk about why here in a minute, because there's a purpose behind that. It wasn't just, oh, just divine OCD. There was a real intent behind doing that. But the place of ministry, not just the seat, but the place of ministry is greater. Jesus' tabernacle or tent is in heaven, not on this fallen earth. All right. So he has ascended into this tabernacle, and that is where he is interceding a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So God has set this up, not man. Man did not build this tent, but God did. The Levites were interceding from this imperfect locale, this imperfect location, but Christ is ministering from this perfect place of holiness. And so what the author is doing in this text is he's just setting up this... this, uh, Picture of the new covenant versus this old covenant, and how the new covenant is now superior to the old covenant, and it's not just by the content of the covenant; it is how and even where it's being administered. And so, everything about the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Now, why is this important? It's important because the audience, which would have been uh, Greek-speaking Jews, all right, at this time, uh, would they would have been reading this, and they would have been still. Um, overwhelmed overwhelmed uh, by their ancestry uh, view and habits of the old covenant. That, that's what they would have been focused on. They would have still uh, had a high place. They would have held that in a high place of prominence. And so what the author is doing is saying, no, the new covenant reigns superior in every way. There's no way in which this new covenant is not superior to the old covenant. And so the new covenant is superior in the seat of the one who sits there, who is interceding on our behalf, the superiority of the place. And then finally here, the superiority of the ministry of the one who is interceding. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. So that's what the priest's role was. Because of sin, because of the fallen world, the priest was an appointed individual called out by God All right, in the line of the Levites to go and offer sacrifice for our sin and for theirs. We've discussed this in the last couple of weeks. Right? And so that was what their purpose was. And then when one priest died, another priest would rise up and then they would make sacrifice as well. Then and and there is another reason why Christ reigns superior as high priest over those other high priests. There are no other sacrifices. But Christ offers a superior ministry to even those Levites. Those Levite sacrifices were important, but they were not superior to what Christ did. Christ offers himself a spotless lamb, not not fallible precursors. Now, what do I mean by that? Remember going back to shadows, right? When we look at the seat, the seat where the high priest sat was but a shadow of where Christ sits. It was just symbolic. It was pointing to something greater. Too often, Individuals thought that that was the, that their place, their tent of meeting, their seat of prominence, their gifts that they were offering were reigned supreme over all things. What they failed to realize was that they were cogs in this great redemptive machine, and they were pointing to something that was ultimately going to do the work, if you will, which is in Christ. Christ's sacrifice is not stained with his own guilt. And so, whereas the gifts that were being offered by the high priests, they themselves were stained. They themselves were marred in sin. The offering that Christ was given, there was no spot or blemish in this gift. His ministry is greater yet, greater still. Christ's gift is according to grace, not the law. So what does it say in verse 4 here? It says in verse three, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So it was necessary. Jesus could not just come in and not offer some sort of sacrifice. A sacrifice had to be made, right? But then it says this, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all because he wasn't a Levite. Since there are priests Who offer gifts according to the law. And so, what the author is saying here is that if this was being, if he was interceding on our behalf on earth, all right, as opposed to where he sits right now, he wouldn't be a priest at all because he wasn't a Levite. So, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have, uh, it just wouldn't have happened, right? But then he says here in verse four, it says, since there are priests, Levites, who are offering gifts according to the law. And so those Levites were offering gifts according to the Mosaic law that had been authored there by, that had been inspired by God to Moses and declaring that these particular sacrifices had to be made. And so that's what the Levites were doing, but they were doing it according to the law, which meant it was temporary. Temporary. These were temporary, symbolic, important, all right, necessary, but still a shadow of what was yet to come. And so even the ministry of Christ is greater. All of what we see in the sacrificial system is pointing to something greater. It's pointing to something greater. Now, if, I want us, now I want us to take it back and how does this, how are we going to rope this into our own lives? How do we apply this to our own lives? And I want to make this claim, is that if the superiority of the seat of our current, of our high priest, Jesus, is greater, if there is superiority in the place of the ministry of Jesus, if there is superiority in the ministry, in the actual ministry and the gifts of our high priest, then I will claim this, that a superior covenant, the new covenant, demands a superior sacrifice on our part. That's that's what I believe that the New Testament teaches. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is this is that I find, I think, and I even see this in my own life, is that we look at our own lives and we, and we may not do this literally, but sort of we kind of do this uh, just by, by habit, is we look at our lives and we kind of piecemeal it and say, well, I have this that I can give to this, I have this that I can give to this, and I have this that I can give uh, to God. And in the Old Testament, when they tithe, they would would see their allotment and then they would give a particular amount, 10%, we usually say, to God. Now, this sermon is not about money. This is just an example of this, okay? And they would give a certain allotment, all right, that this is to God and this is to us. In a New Testament reality, the truth is, is that we give every bit of it. Every bit, bit of it is to the Lord. Every bit of our life is to the Lord. We don't just commit a part of our life. We commit all of our life to God. It's not just a section of our time. All of our time is committed to the Lord, into serving the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to just quit our jobs and go work full-time in the ministry. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that in the place that we have been uh, providentially appointed to work and live and thrive, that time that we expend is still being expent on behalf of the glory of God, that we would do all things for the glory and for the sake of God. And so... A superior covenant demands what? It demands that we would be even more generous, not less. A superior covenant demands that we would be even more loving, not less. A superior covenant means that there would be even greater sacrifice on our behalf, that we would be willing to give everything up for the call of the Lord. Absolutely everything and that there would be even a greater commitment because of that. Now, why do I say that? It's because of this. One of the things that we see in the Old Testament is we see the great commitment and the great devotion by many of our heroes of the faith, right? Now, they all had flaws. Every one of them were sinners. Every one of them had problems. But if we look at Abraham, if we look at David, if we look at Moses, if we go down the line and look at them, if we look at at Ruth. I mean, if we go down the line and look at all of these, Hebrews, uh, these, these heroes of the faith that we will see in Hebrews chapter 11, one of the things that we see that makes them stand apart from the rest of the crowd is their commitment and dedication to all things Yahweh, because it was the Old Testament at that time, all right? That's what we see. But far too often, Instead of giving everything to the Lord, I find myself kind of looking back and say, well, what, you know, what part of my day can I give to the Lord today? That, that's a, that's a, a really, really poor and sinful way of looking at life. The way to look at it is to say, Christ gave us everything. Now, I will give everything back to him. As I am teaching this class to these students about nutrition, how can I in some way do this for the glory of God? Even if it's just putting every bit of my effort into it. How can I, as I'm working on this grant, how can I put my effort into this for the glory of God? How can I, when I'm doing this or that, do this for the glory of God so that it is an in some ways, an act of worship in how we are living? How can my entire life be a testimony to the God and the grace that he showed us by giving, by gifting us faith? How can we pour that back out to him instead of just piecemealing it and looking at, well, what? Because honestly, when we do that, when we look at, at our lives and say, well, I'm going to give this much to God. I'm going to keep this much to ourselves. What we're really doing, we're not trying to look to be super generous to God. We're trying to look to be super generous to ourselves. That's what we're doing. And I am just as guilty, if not more guilty than most Christians. And I struggle with that. And it's the sin that's in my life. Now, we talked about shadows as we conclude. We talked about shadows in our life and how the Old Testament is pointing to the New Testament, how it's pointing to Christ through the sacrificial system, through the tabernacle, uh, through the place of seating of Christ. I mean, just walk through the line. All right? It's pointing to grace. It's pointing to mercy. It's pointing to Jesus. The shadow is not greater than the real thing. So let's look at our faith. Let's not let our faith be a shadow of the real thing. Let's let our faith be the real thing. Let it not be just dancing shadows of marionettes on the wall, but let it be a true self-sacrificial faith where we are committing our whole lives to this, committing our entire life to Christ because remember, a shadow of faith is impotent. It has no power. A shadow of the faith is not real faith. When we were saved by grace through faith, it was not a shadow of faith that was gifted to us. It was real flesh and blood faith that was gifted, because a shadow is impotent. It has no power but real faith, the kind of faith that God gives us by his grace, it has true power, the true power to save. And it is evidenced by this type of life that is self-sacrificial with superior generosity, superior love, superior sacrifice, and superior commitment. And so let's just remember that as we as we live our lives what can we give more to the lord not less because sometimes i'll catch myself saying i've done enough for the lord today all right now i don't say that verbally all right cuz i haven't been struck down yet but you know in my mind you know in my mind it's like ah I've done enough for the Lord today. Is there really, is there really a moment in your life where you can truly say, honestly saying that you've done enough for the Lord today? There's never, there's never. What if Christ serving as our high priest comes into this world and then halfway through his ministry, he says, I've done enough for them people today. I don't need to heal that leper. I don't need to heal that blind person. I don't need to give... I've done enough. I don't need to go to the cross for these people. I've done enough to demonstrate the goodness of God. And then we are lost in standing condemnation. Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. All to him I owe. Not just part, but the whole Let's let our faith not be a shadow of the real thing, but let it be the flesh and blood real thing that people see and people are attracted to and people follow because it leads to something even greater, which is Christ.